You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Welcome in, everyone, to episode lucky number seven of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com, and uh, I'm at Ben Folks' house with Ben Folks from MMAFighting.com, your other co-host. Ben, how are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for coming over today. Uh, I feel like now we're really getting this, the way we set this crap up and just get right to town. It's, it's a well-oiled machine at this point. Yeah, things are starting to become streamlined. I will tell you this. I'm excited today for today's podcast. You're, for... you're lying. I can tell you're no, lying No, right I am. Now. I'm excited. People at home, if you could look in his eyes right now, you'd see a liar's eyes. That's what you'd see. I'm excited for two reasons. Reason number one, because we actually have what appears to be a legitimate fight card to talk about this weekend in UFC 148. Okay, that's true. And the other reason that I'm excited is because we are on the verge of, of announcing the first ever co-main event podcast listener contest. Well, that is exciting. That That's something that... Uh... When we were first discussing this idea, I, you know, I don't want to oversell it, but I'm going to say maybe the most important thing to happen to podcasts of since, all time. Yes. Yeah. Since the invention of podcast technology in what the 1930s or something, whenever yeah, it was the 20s or 30s. Yeah. Around there. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, historically and culturally significant for everyone. People's everywhere. I'm not entirely sure how much we want to give away. Uh, suffice to say that next week's episode is one you will not want to miss because we will be outlining the rules and regulations of the first ever co-main event podcast listener contest, as well as the prizes, which I think will delight you and surprise you in their awesomeness. Or you'll be incredibly disappointed in them. Well, I mean, I th- let's just say we've got some good stuff to give away. There's a, a copy of the UFC encyclopedia, barely used, <laughs> that, that doesn't fit in my bookcase, that will probably end up being, you know, among the prize pack. Here's the thing. We sh- let's level with people right now. We decided we wanted to do this contest and that we wanted to, to give out some prizes, but we didn't actually want to go and do anything to get the prizes. Like, we didn't want to go purchase prizes for you a-holes because, you know... You wouldn't do it for us. Uh, so basically, we decided, though, we started looking around our our respective offices and realized we have a bunch of UFC and MMA-themed crap just sitting around that people just give you. Uh, and, you know, we're not really doing anything with it. So, hey, maybe you win the contest, and maybe it's not even a win thing. Maybe it's just you're one of the people who participated and you didn't absolutely fucking suck. Therefore... We pick up something in the office. Who knows what it'll be? Maybe, you know, as Chad said, it's a copy of the UFC encyclopedia barely used that won't fit in his bookcase. Maybe it's a program from UFC 92 that I still have that is autographed by Sir Nigel himself, noted theatricalist Sir hey, Nigel You Longstock. know what? Maybe it's an unopened and never before used copy of the UFC personal trainer video game, which I have, but because I'm a 34-year-old grown man, I don't have an Xbox. So... Yeah, then that could be another thing. And I, I don't know if I'd call that crap. I think that someone would be delighted to pick that up. Yeah, well, and who knows? Maybe if you do really well, or if the prize is really crappy, we feel bad for you and we throw in a Baskin-Robbins gift card or something. There's a lot of options is what we're saying. Yeah. But the larger point is, next week, don't forget to listen to the podcast because it's going to be an exciting podcast. It's going to be a chance for you to match wits with uh, your fellow listeners and, and to see who comes out on top. Anyway, uh, you know what I decided? I decided I think we should dispense with the uh, 
with the disclaimer. Yeah, people know by now, right? Yeah, we're, we're seven episodes in. People know there's going to be swearing, adult themes, and we're just doing this on our own. Well, you pretty much did the disclaimer there. You just did a half-assed version of it. All right, well, let's go ahead and segue into listener mail for this week. Uh, we asked for your questions, comments, and concerns, and you responded, as you always do, with some good listener mail questions, uh, which in the future, if you want to contribute to listener mail, you can email us by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. Either that, or if you want to cut a few corners, you can just email us at the uh, the, the podcast's email address, which is comaineventpodcast at uh, gmail.com. Anyway... The first question for the week comes from Ryan, and it says, Is the term significant strikes bullshit? How can we tell which strikes are truly significant or insignificant? Fight metric and CompuStrike slash CompuBox like to use the term as a measurement to award rounds to fighters, along with the other cr- criteria to win, but upon rewatching rounds or entire fights to the naked eye, you can only identify the blatantly obvious strikes as insignificant or significant. So essentially, Ryan is asking, is the term significant strikes bullshit? And I would expand on that. I would say not only is the term significant strikes bullshit, but also MMA statistics in general are still very much a work in progress. And that is not to say anything negative about either fight metric or CompuBox. I've talked to the fight metric guys before. They're nice guys. They are talented statistical analysts. Yeah, and we don't want to do that shit. I mean, that's, that seems like no, a pain yeah, in the ass to we do. Don't wanna, we don't want to keep those statistics. But in general, I feel like MMA statistics oftentimes fail to tell the story of an actual fight. Ben? It's tough. Uh, it's, I don't think this is a sport that's ever going to lend itself to statistics. And it's the same – I mean, boxing is a little better, but still not much. And they have the same problem in boxing where they will say power shots, you know, and basically that's anything but a jab. Which doesn't really do it because sometimes guys are just throwing arm punches that aren't intended to really be power shots or anything. And it's the same with MMA. When you say significant strikes, it's true. You don't really know. I mean, what's significant? It might significant be uh, dependent on who is taking the punch. I mean... Yeah, I know that during the last UFC they said that the term significant strikes uh, refers to any strike that does damage, which is makes it sound even more arbitrary yeah. than you might you might guess. I mean, remember when uh, Chuck Liddell got knocked out by Rich Franklin by that just short little hook that didn't seem like much, and that was how you really knew Chuck Liddell was done? I mean, was that even a significant strike? Was it a significant strike because it knocked him out? In that case, then you're, what you're talking about is its effect, and you can't really measure its effect. You know, when uh, I was talking to Chael Sonnen, he was telling me that when he got booked to fight Michael Bisping, uh, Dan Henderson called him up and said, don't believe what people tell you about uh, Michael Bisping, you know, that he doesn't hit hard or, you know, that, he, 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 that he's got no power. When he hit me, it hurt. And that's from the guy who knocked Bisping out, you know, so he did pretty well against Bisping. But he was saying, look, that perception out there that uh, Bisping can't hit, maybe it looks like that on TV, but he hits you, it hurts. And, and Sonnen said the same thing, that he, he, was, he found that to be true when he got in there and mixed it up with Michael Bisping. So, yeah, you don't know what the hell is significant. Yeah, and the thing that really bothers me about about statistics at large will be when the UFC throws out these numbers, like usually they do it pre-fight, they'll say something like, Phil Davis lands 80% of his takedowns or whatever, and it's just like, no idea what that means, no idea why it's relevant, no idea if it will come into play in the fight, it just seems like... This sport in particular is one that does not lend itself to meaningful statistical analysis. Just 
you know, especially not in the way that they're currently that they're currently doing it. I sometimes feel like the way you know that you have lost a an MMA argument is if you have to start citing statistics. <laughs> You're saying statistics is the the last refuge of the person on the wrong side of the MMA. In argument? a lot of ways, it is because I feel like typically, even in a fight that's disputed, like you can t- you can just tell. It's kind of like the definition of pornography, you know, that you, you, you don't know, you can't quantify it, but you know it when you see it in that. Like, Do I ever. When, uh, when uh, Carlos Condit beat Nick Diaz, it just, he just obviously beat him. You, could, you didn't need to, to cite statistics to prove it. It's just, you know, to I, the naked I, eye, I feel like I it was I feel though it is interesting because sometimes, like with the Clay Guida-Gray Maynard fight, uh, I felt like that was one where it was interesting to see who was actually doing stuff and in what rounds and how that changed. I mean, it, of course, it doesn't tell you everything, but it does, at least when after that one, when there was a perception that Clay Guido... Man, why can't I say Clay Guido's name? This is really troubling to me today. I think I'm having a stroke right right in front of you. Uh, the perception was that uh, he was running the entire time, and then you look at the stats and you say, well, obviously that couldn't have been true because he threw a bunch of punches and landed a bunch. That kind of, it's helpful. I think the problem is if we just start putting too much stock into it, as if we think that it tells us more than it does, then it becomes a problem. Question number two is from Jesse Bockles, and he asked, We all loved the idea of making all main events five-round fights. Well, editor's note, not all of us, but... Because Chad Dundas doesn't love shit. Back back to the question. Uh, But looking at those events, I think it was a mistake. What do you guys think? Shouldn't those quote-unquote championship rounds be something special? Ben, you want to take the no. first crack here? No, I like the five-round main events. I, I, I feel, you know, sometimes, sure, it doesn't work out that the fight's great, and then you, but what? The worst-case scenario is there's two extra rounds of it? That's not the end of your fucking life. And look at the uh, Dan Henderson-Shogun Hua fight. Imagine if that one had just been three rounds. We would have been denied an awesome fight. I don't care. How many bullshit five-round main events I have to sit through? It's worth it just for that one. Uh, yeah, you make a good point that, that we have certainly got some rad fights out of it. I am going to disagree with you, though, uh, for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it has always struck me as incredibly arbitrary that, that main events would, would suddenly be five rounds because what you're essentially saying is that the length of your fight is going to be decided by essentially the strength of the rest of the card that you fight on. Like if you fight, if, if you're Clay Guida and, and Gray Maynard and you fight on a really shitty card on FX, by virtue of the fact that you are the best fight on the card, your fight is suddenly five rounds. Whereas if you have that exact same fight on a much better fight card, like, like let's say that fight took place this weekend at yeah. UFC 148, then suddenly it's a three-round fight. That, to Still, me, doesn't make any sense. But how much does that really, like, how big a deal is that? I think it's a big deal because here's something that I had not thought of before, but when I was talking to uh, Dan Hardy in Las Vegas uh, once when I was down there, he brought up an interesting point, and that was that he fought George St. Pierre for the title as the last fight on his original UFC contract. So he didn't really get paid very much for the, well, this is my inference. He didn't say that, but my inference would be that he didn't get paid very much for that fight. And Hardy made the point, hey, when you have a five round fight instead of a three round fight, it's almost like you're training for two fights, you know, one more round and you'd be having a fight twice as long as a normal fight. So to his mind, he trained twice as hard, showed up and did twice, almost twice as much work on fight night and still got paid, you know, according to what he would have gotten paid for a three round fight. but, But the thing is, a five-round fight means you have to be prepared to go as many as five rounds. That's true. It does not mean you automatically have to fight five rounds. 
Right, but you still have to prepare for five rounds, which right. I think is the bulk of the workload. Yeah, but I still I think that uh, you know if if you're if you are in a main event, if you're about even if it's because the rest of the card sucks, you know that could happen on a pay per view too. That could, where injuries or whatever derail the rest of the card, and your fight is the main event, therefore you know or gets promoted to the main event. So you know then you're in a five round or whatever. If you were gonna wear that main event badge. Then you ought to be ready to to do that shit. If you can't do it, then then you're not a main event fighter. I, I think that it's perfectly fine to ask these guys to go two extra rounds. Uh, if if you don't feel like you can do that, then I, why do we want to see you in the main event? Well, I don't think it, it wasn't an instance of anyone feeling like they couldn't do it. I think it was an instance of them feeling they should have got paid more for it, which I think is a valid point. Well, I mean, he was in a fucking title fight for Christ's sake. Look at you, tool of the man. <laughs> Oh, that, I mean, I'm just saying that's going to be a, no. A seriously, five how much is Dana White paying you right now? To right now? Yeah, right now. To well, I mean, I, I get paid in uh, just free Subway sandwiches, so yeah, I can't I can't put a dollar price on that. I mean, no, what, that's that's I can invaluable. walk into a, any Subway in America right that now is and quite eat. Quite literally priceless. Yeah, uh, Subway I, sandwiches. I would also mm, delicious. <laughs> I would also agree with Jesse's uh, last point that I think that the championship rounds should be special. I did like it when championship round championship fights were two rounds longer. It did make them feel, you know, special in some way. Anyway, last question for this week's listener mail sec- segment comes from Andre Pechki, and he writes, "I can't decide what to make of Alistair Overeem's PR campaign of self testing. Hardly anyone seems to believe this this credible since the tests are run by quote unquote his medical staff." However, looking at his commission hearing, Overeem proved that he is hardly able to have somebody produce a convincing bottle of anti-inflammatory. <laughs> wow. Now he's able to fake monthly blood work. Assuming he provides credible paperwork instead of just tweeting past another one, told you I was natural every 3 weeks. Uh, maybe he's seriously sworn off the alleged juice. Could he really pull it off? Could he really? I don't know. Anyway, you get the gist yeah, of the question. Yeah, I see where he's going. Here's the thing. And first of all, if there was anything that would teach you the value of, if not getting off the juice, then at least uh, finding a more credible way to go about being on the juice, I would think it would be being suspended for... He's for... not suspended. Clearly, clearly, you didn't watch the interview on UFC tonight where Alistair Overeem grumbles about how he's not suspended. Anyway, he just can't on. get a license. That's right. Yeah. He can't, just has to reapply fight. for a license yeah. in December. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let Alistair explain the, the distinction at a later date. Uh, but yeah, if anything would convince him to get better at one or the other, either being clean or faking clean, I would think it would be that experience. At the same time though, this is the problem when you get caught for any kind of performance enhancing drug the the cynicism of the sports fan when it comes to performance enhancing drugs is, is so severe at this point that there's really nothing you could do even if you even if you pass every drug test from now until you retire we're still we're always going to wonder because of that one time i mean we might have wondered about overeem even if he had never failed one well we wondered about him before yeah so, we yeah, did we, we openly and often wondered about him so i don't know what doing your own testing accomplishes because yeah people are just going to say i mean I, when i talked to uh dr don catlin one of the pioneers of anti-doping science he was saying yeah the when people say you know the ufc says we're going to do our own testing we're hiring these people we're going to test everybody when they sign a contract and he said you can find a, a testing company to find exactly what you want nothing 
I mean, people get, you can do that. That's not a, a big issue. So, yeah, I'm not won over by Alistair Overeem's PR campaign. Let, let's see him pass some, some random right. commission test right. when he's actually in training and preparing for a fight. I mean, he's not preparing for anything right now, so right. he doesn't need to juice up. Yeah, and I will say that the nature of his interview on UFC tonight was so nondescript and kind of vague that it's hard to really divine what kind of testing he's doing. I mean, we've all made a huge deal kind of after the fact about how it seems like he's just doing his own testing, whereas I think that the truth is it was totally unclear. He might be doing testing uh, in hand-in-hand with the NSAC, and we just wouldn't know it because the, 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 the interview was so weird. And, and that, to, to my mind, is the biggest problem, not whether or not Alistair Overeem is, is or is not doing drug testing, but the overall attitude that he displayed during the during the interview and has displayed since after testing positives, he's kind of like putting forth this, this attitude that this isn't a big deal. And like, as soon as he comes back in December and is able to clear his name and get, get licensed by the Nevada state athletic commission, like everything is going to be fine. Like everything will be forgiven and forgotten and he'll just carry on with his career and win the UFC. This time next year, it'll be like, well, people will look it up on Wikipedia and be like, oh shit, I totally forgot that Alistair Overeem tested positive. Yeah, huh. so that's kind of his that? attitude. Like, as I wrote on, you know, on ESPN.com, shameless plug, this this <laughs> week, uh, he acts like the problem is that he tested positive for elevated testosterone before UFC 146, when in fact, that's not the problem at all. The problem is that fans don't believe Alistair Overeem anymore. Like, because he tested positive, it only confirmed their suspicions from before that he was on the juice, that he'd been on the juice for a long period of time, and that his entire heavyweight career was the product of of steroids, you know, frankly. And so I think that his PR battle here is a lot more difficult than than what he's letting on. And I don't know if he if he is aware of that or not, but he seems to just sort of be forging ahead with this idea that this is just a blip on the radar when I think it's a much, much bigger crisis for him. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't be the first guy to be telling himself a, a pleasant story about how he is perceived that is not actually the truth. I mean, that happens with a lot of pro athletes, I think, especially in situations like this. The same kind of thing where, like, you know, when Nate Marquardt gets asked about TRT now and he says, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about that. It's in the past. I can't believe people are still asking about that. Can you believe it? I mean, it was like a year ago. Yeah. As if, you know, that is some kind of ancient history that he he's surprised anyone still cares about. Athletes love to do that thing as if they act like, you know, even if it's six weeks later. Oh, it's in the past. No, that's not how that shit works. Also, memo to Nate Marquardt and other professional fighters. You don't get to decide what the story is. Anyway, that's listener mail. Wait, wait, before, what, we, we, yeah. before we end listener mail, weren't you telling me before we started this that somebody sent in a listener mail in which they actually, maybe sincerely, thanked us for putting them to sleep with the podcast? Yeah, uh, a guy sent us an email. I think we just got it today, actually. Um, he seemed very like sincere and, and, and totally earnest about it, but he was like, hey, great job on the podcast. I really like it. It really helps me go to sleep at night. Like, it seems like maybe he has trouble sleeping, and he, he puts the podcast on at night and, and just feels goes warm to sleep and, safe when he and hears then your like, voice. kind of listens to it. As if you're wrapping your arms around him. Maybe in segments like uh, uh, throughout the week. And at the same time, it was really hard to tell, like, is he just like putting us on? Yeah. Cause like when this you write, when really you write into someone, mockery. yeah. When you write into someone who has a podcast and you're like, Hey asshole, great podcast <laughs> yeah. really helps me go to sleep at night. It's, well, it's hard to discern if that's an actual compliment. Maybe here's the question. Do you think he's already asleep at this point in the podcast? And if so, can we start talking about him? Well, we already did start talking about him and I don't know. How long does it take a man to fall asleep? Well, I don't Maybe once he hears the, the, 
the dulcet tones of Chad Dundas, uh, he falls right right to sleep. Who knows? There is something very soothing about my voice. Anyway, uh, thanks to everyone who wrote in. If you have questions for future episodes, you can hit us up on the website, comaineventpodcast.com, the handy link at the top of the page that says email the podcast, or just type comaineventpodcast at gmail.com into your email provider of choice and, and, and hit us up. Also, uh, one very special member of the, the CME listening audience sent in a, a very well thought out question. Uh, and he's probably listening right now thinking, I can't believe those assholes didn't use my question. However, we are going to use his question. It's going to be the subject of an entire round later in the show. So don't go anywhere. You're going to want to hear that one. That's a good tease. It's going to be round number three, uh, but that is getting ahead of ourselves because right now it is time to begin round number one. Round one. This weekend at UFC 148, Chael Sonnen uh, not only gets his long-awaited, much-anticipated, highly-touted, much-talked-about shot at Anderson Silva, but he also gets his second shot at, I guess you would say, uh, UFC legend, UFC infamy, UFC... Lore? Lore, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, and here's the thing that I was thinking about earlier today, uh, and that is that on an, on an earlier listener mail segment, a guy sent us in a question that asked us how this would affect both Chael Sonnen and Anderson Silva's legacy and I think my answer at the time would be that I didn't think it would affect Sonnen's legacy that much because he didn't really have a, le- a real legacy as an elite MMA fighter to speak of as it were uh, I think that is a misrepresentation of your answer but go ahead okay what would you say was a, a proper representation of my I answer? Don't know. Just go on. Anyway, I'm going to stick with the same answer, but for different reasons. Uh, I don't know. This is so exciting already. I don't know if uh, if this fight is a real referendum on Chael's, uh, Chael Sonnen's legacy, just because I think Chael Sonnen may have already won in terms of his legacy. When you think about where Chael Sonnen was five years ago, it was that he had just turned 30 years old. He had already washed out of the UFC once. And he was fighting guys like Casey Cola and Tim McKenzie and Tim Crater in not necessarily main event fights on small independent shows in places like Costa Rica and Portland. And uh, I believe he fought in Reno, you know, the real, real hot spots. I'm not going to sit here and listen to you talk shit on Bodog fight of, of the fight. game. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So to think that Chael Sonnen ha- has come from being this really a nobody, a guy who uh, was a, at best a, a, top, a top of the second tier. To think that he has gone from that to becoming really the career-defining nemesis of who a guy that we all sort of regard as the greatest mixed martial artist of all time is kind of extraordinary. So I would, I would offer to you by way of, of protracted opening statement that uh, Sonnen has already won. Like, win, lose, or draw this weekend, he's done pretty goddamn well for himself. No, I'm going to completely disagree with your protracted opening statement. A lot depends not only on who wins this fight, but how it goes. If Chelsea goes out there, fights really hard, you know, gives as good as he gets and loses a narrow decision, fine, maybe, you know, you kind of have a point. Or, you know, if he, even if he gets finished late in the fight. But if he goes out there and a pissed-off Anderson Silva really does pull all his teeth out of his <laughs> mouth and make him swallow them, uh, a spectacle which I'm sure we'll all never forget if it goes down that way, then that is going to be remembered very differently. I think that then he gets remembered as 
Ah, this kind of lovable, entertaining buffoon. He's a court jester who was around for a little while, and we it was fun. Uh, and he did well in the first fight when, and people will look back on that one and say, well, Anderson was hurt, and Chael had the testosterone of a silverback gorilla. Uh, and, yeah, okay, so, of course, those two things together, of course he does well. If he goes out now where he knows he's got to have his testosterone levels in check, uh, and, and if Anderson Silva is completely healthy and Silva just destroys him, then, you know, the, the timing of all that will work against him when people look back on it and they'll think, you know, he was a, a shit talker who was entertaining but was not as good as he made himself out to be. Fair point. But I think that the initial, my initial point was that Sonnen has already come a lot farther than we ever thought he would. Yeah, if and I he's probably told you made a lot more money than he ever would I would have said, Ben... You know, in 2012, Chael Sonnen is going to be one of the biggest draws in the UFC. He's going to be Anderson Silva's chief antagonist. And, like, he, he is going to set himself up to be in the main event of what could be the UFC's biggest selling pay-per-view of all time. You would be like, you're fucking crazy. Yeah. That dude just barely beat Trevor Prangley at, you know, fight for the troops or whatever. I, yeah, two, two I, weeks I ago. would be like that. And, you so know, in, that, I remember... in that sense, I think he's already kind of overachieved. No matter what happens, unless Anderson Silva does literally pull his teeth out and they can yes. eat them. Well, I remember, and I think I told the story once before in an article on MMAfighting.com, but I remember when I was working for the IFL, uh, and it was probably 2005 or 2006, maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, it had to be like 2006 or 2007 if I was working for the IFL. But uh, he was hanging out with the Portland Wolf Pack, Matt Lindland's team. I believe you still have some Portland Wolf Pack t-shirts that I sent you that you wear. I see you wearing at the gym I do. Sometimes. It's a collector's item. It is. And... Could possibly be a prize in next week's contest. <laughs> there you go. See that you don't know. You know you're really going to want to listen to this this contest next week. But again, that's that's for next week. Uh, but I remember we we're at some kind of event. He was there. I don't know if he was an assistant coach or just some kind of unofficial capacity with the team. And he was kind of hanging out there a couple days before the fight at the hotel while they were doing their interviews. And I remember him kind of coming in and out, sounding like he was doing you know vague real estate deals on his phone. And one of the IFL, one of the, the women who worked for the IFL in like marketing or something who knew absolutely nothing about MMA was kind of being introduced around. And, you know, she, without really thinking about it, she saw Chael Sonnen and she was like, and, and how about you? Are, are you somebody? And you could kind of see his face where he's like, well, shit, what do you, what do you say to that question? And I think his answer was something like, no, no, you know, I'm nobody yet or, or, or something along those lines. Uh, and now... And that's also what, you know, his his grappling and, and striking coach uh, Scott McCrary was telling me that the way he explained it, Sonnen explained it to him was before people didn't pay attention to him. Now he's got that problem solved. It, whatever else happens, people will remember him. People are paying attention. He, he's got the opportunity. Uh, and this is a weird business. It's just winning fights alone won't won't get you those opportunities all the time. You do have to find a way to stand out and be remembered. He's done that part. But a lot depends on what he does on Saturday night, uh, whether he's remembered as, you know, the smartest guy in the room or, you know, a charming buffoon. I think we have to wait and see how that fight plays out because there's a lot of ways people could discredit that other performance. There's a lot of ways that the, the I mean, the timing couldn't have worked out better for him when he chose to call Anderson Silva out and people were kind of fed up with Silva's antics and were like, hey, even though we, everybody thought Chael was going to get his ass kicked, they thought... Well, at least he'll make Anderson Silva do something memorable. At least it won't be some Demian Maya shit where he's dancing around. That was the appeal of that first fight. But then the timing worked out the exact opposite way afterwards when it was like, oh, well, that's the fight you choose to test with elevated testosterone levels for? Not good. Because then people are going to discredit your performance. So I think he, he needs to have a good showing 
win or lose here. Um, but, you know, I I like his chances here. I, th- I think he's got a pretty decent chance. I do, too. I, I don't. I don't think we should shortchange the guy. I mean, he is he's one of the few guys that throughout his entire career has been one of those guys that has both the quickness and the wrestling skill to pretty much take you down without even bothering to set up his takedowns. Like he did it to Brian Stan a couple of times in their fight where, you know, everybody in the room knew that he was going to try to take, try to take Brian Stan down. He came out. I don't even know if he bothered to throw a punch and he did. He just double legged him and put you him know, straight you, on his ass. If you talk to Mola wall, he will say that, uh, and he's a big, you know, he's obviously a, a wrestling Homer, uh, and uh, a buddy of Chael's, but he's talking, about that you know that tricky t- takedown that Chael has where people think that they can get guillotine him or something coming straight in and they never can uh or they never can finish it or something and and he says that that even when people have seen it on tape and think that they they know it when it's coming and know what to do about it it still tricks them and that's coming from a guy who's seen his share of takedowns so obviously yeah. there's something to that he I had know, no problem taking Anderson Silva down the first no he didn't and I don't know you know unless you are one of the people that buys into the to the hurt rib defense the broken rib. yeah okay defense. can we talk about that for a second sure the, the the hurt rib defense all right maybe your ribs are banged up but one or two things has to be the case either they weren't so banged up that they made you completely incapable of defending takedowns or you so underestimated the other guy that even though your ribs were completely fucked you still thought screw it I'll, i i'm either that good or he's that bad that it won't matter neither one of which uh I find particularly plausible. I mean, I believe that his ribs are probably not in optimal shape. Maybe it would have been better to, you know, if you could choose another time to to put the fight off, but that's not the way this goes. I I think that if he got in there, uh, he was not so bad off that uh, he was rendered incapable of takedown defense. Yeah, and I, another thing that I don't think we we should overlook at all is is Chael Sonnen's. You know, Chael Sonnen's a smart guy, and he fully knows what his weakness is in in MMA. And I think one of the most compelling you know interviews that I've ever seen from him was right after that fight, the interview that Mike Straka did, where Sonnen was did not appear to be in character at all, and appeared to be very forthcoming about about his weaknesses and what he needs to work on and how heart-wrenching it is for him to to go through those five rounds and then kind of pull an earnest binder and fumble on the goal line when when he's got the game in hand and I think that because of all that you have to believe that Sonnen has been training leading up to this fight to finish it once he gets Anderson Silva down and I think you saw that also in the Brian Stand fight where Maybe a couple years ago, Sonnen would have been able to take Stan down, but would have just ended up grinding out kind of a boring decision. In the Stan fight, he took, he not only did he take him down, but he finished him with a submission. So I think in this fight, you're going to see Sonnen really put an emphasis on trying to finish either with a submission or ground and pound if he can get Silva to the ground. Because if you're Sonnen, you have to assume like, well, either I'm going to get him to the ground or I'm going to lose. So yeah. once I get him there, I better, I better finish it. You know, a thing about him being in character and out of character... Uh, I, I spent a couple days with him in uh, in West Lynn on the mean streets of West Lynn, Oregon, uh, back in early May. Uh, I got a piece coming out for Sports Illustrated uh, this week, and then I'm going to have a, a companion piece, a little more insider stuff. That's you know, I, I had to give Sports Illustrated what they want for the, the mainstream sports crowd, uh, and then they edit it and do whatever the hell they want. But for MMA fighting, I get to do what I want. So uh, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be awesome. Uh, but uh, Speaking of shameless plugs. Yeah. Uh, talking to him, talking to his family, one of the things I kept hearing, especially from his family, was, you know, it's not so much a character as it is just the regular Sonin turned up. 
sure. a little and, bit. Well, that's the best professional wrestling character they yeah. always say. We, you know, and I, I'm going to read you a quote. This is something that happened, and this was part of the conversation where he definitely did not seem to be in character, to, so to speak. But you can see, I was asking him about college. He went to the University of Oregon, got a degree in sociology. I was trying to see if he actually cared about sociology. He immediately admitted that he asked what was the easiest major and somebody told him sociology and communications and he just thought sociology sounded better. Uh, Quote, there's really nothing useful in college. College is like karate. If your dad wants to pay enough money, he can get you a black belt. But whatever you do, don't go get yourself in a fight because they'll find out you aren't that tough. Now, that's exactly the kind of Chael Sonnen bit that, you know, you can see him doing that about Brazilians or about guys pulling out hurt from fights after they agree to them. Uh, but that's that's kind of the real guy. You can tell that that's, you know, whether or not you agree with them or not, I think there's plenty of useful stuff in college. But uh, that that does give you an, an example of how that Chael Sonnen character, it's not a completely made-up persona. Uh, and some of the stuff, I think some of even the crazier stuff that he... he says after spending a couple days with him and hearing some of the other crazy stuff he says when he's not really in character i wonder how much of it he actually talks himself into believing well yeah and i think you're right a lot of a lot there's a lot of the real chael sonnen in the public persona of chael sonnen i think it comes easy to him just because he does come from that wrestling background where it's kind of all about (laughs) winning or dying essentially (laughs) uh but one of the things i feel like one of the the often you know, one of the the major like storylines of Chael Sonnen is like I feel like when we write about him or when we talk about him, there's this there's this there's this uh, you know we tend to like cast him as this enigma or like this guy we don't understand or like where's the real Chael Sonnen amid this these layers and layers of his superstar Billy Graham persona. And I, again, I was thinking about it this morning, and it's like I I kind of think that Chael Sonnen, who Chael Sonnen is, and his reasonings for doing what he does is really simple. And I think, again, it goes back to being that dude who woke up one day and was 30 years old and had already kind of squandered his MMA career, had already been to the UFC and washed out after two losses and three fights. And he thought to himself, you know what? I've never won a goddamn thing. I've devoted my entire life. <laughs> I don't to see him being quite that honest with himself, but it'll go on. I do. Uh, he's, in, he's devoted his entire life to this athletic pursuit. At the time, he must have thought that the window was closing on his athletic career. If he didn't think that, he should have. And he had, you know, he, he even if he didn't really know it, he must have been left with the conclusion that, hey, if it ends right now, I'm going to be, a, I will have been a disappointment. Like my career will have been a disappointment. And you have to kind of ask yourself not only like, what would you do if it, if you woke up one morning and you were like, this thing I've devoted my entire life to is almost over and I have an accomplishment, I'm going to be a disappointment. Like, would you lie? Would you cheat? Would you steal? Would you all sacrifice that. your... I'd do your... all of it. Yeah, exactly. You would, right? And yeah. now, that's what you would do. That's what I would do. <laughs> now think of what Chael fucking Sonnen would do. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing, though. Because when Chael Sonnen goes out there and plays the bad guy, uh, I do believe he thinks of himself as playing the bad guy. I don't think he goes home and thinks, I'm a bad person. I, nobody wants to think that. Yeah, no, no one thinks that. Serial killers probably don't think that. They're probably like, well, I'm mostly a good person except for... Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm misunderstood in this one small regard. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think is the really like interesting part about it is because you have to go out there and do the Chael Sonnen thing where you act like an asshole, but you probably don't regard yourself as an asshole. You think you just play one on TV sometimes. But 
when pro wrestlers do it, they do it under a stage name. When Chael Sonnen does it, he does it under his name. And then when the California State Athletic Commission wants to know why you're lying all the time, it's kind of hard for you to say, well, that's kind of my deal is sometimes I lie. Sure. And that's a, talking to him, even about stuff where it's obvious that he's lying, you can't get him to admit he's lying. Uh, the, the fake belt, I think, is a perfect example of that. I brought the fake belt to him when he told me, you know, I don't lie. I don't, I've never lied about anything. The fake belt is obviously a lie. Like, yeah. we all know that that's not the real belt. We, when you hold it up and say that it is, we know that that's not true, and we know that you know it's not true. But instead of just saying that, yeah, that's, that part is not true, he offers a justification of it. Uh, the justification, you know, he presents it adamantly enough that uh, you're almost convinced, and then you stop and you think, no, wait, this is an immutable fact. Chelsea does not have the UFC middleweight belt. No matter how convincing he can sound about that, it's not true. So then you have to wonder about all the stuff, like real issues, like the testosterone stuff. Does he really need it? I mean, he can't, he, he's kind of sacrificed his credibility in getting noticed that he can't now come out to us and make this case and say, no, seriously, about this, seriously, I'm being serious now about this. Right. I and, really uh, need it. I do think that he probably opened up a kettle of fish that he did not fully understand when he first began this, like, trip to the dark side, so to speak. Like, when he created this, when he decided that, you know, the next time he texted Joe Silva, like, Joe Silva was going to know who he was. Yeah. Like, I don't think he fully understood the undertaking that, that, he, that he decided to go on. And, you know, to his credit, he's done it probably better than anyone else maybe in the history of all of sports. Uh, like, he, he's done an almost flawless job. At the same time, some of it is an act, and I think when you were hanging out with him, at some point, even if it was just for a brief instance, he did break character and admit to you, like, hey, I'm the bad guy. No one wants to listen to me complain about my, you know, pleading guilty in federal court or, or what have you. Yeah, no, he, he did say that, 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 that you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm the bad guy. And the bad guy does not get to complain. That is a, a trade-off to that he's made, uh, but I, I don't know if he knows whether or not it will be worth it in the end. I think a lot of it depends on how he does in this fight, which also makes me think, in another way that this has worked, we haven't really talked about Anderson Silva at all. Anderson Silva gets on that conference call and goes fucking nuts, uh, at least you know according to what people tell me about uh, Portuguese, he went fucking nuts, uh, and still... Chael Sonnen is the story. Right, into this sure, fight. yeah, absolutely, as well he should be. Like, I don't... This, this, I don't know, I mean, Anderson Silva is the one who, no matter what happens, he goes down as one of, if not the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. Sure, yeah, but I mean, in, in that fact, he's a little more boring than Sonnen. Like, the, the stakes are mostly in Sonnen's camp, you know, on his side. If he wins, then pff, more power to him. He's one of... He, he put him in the history books, and if he loses, like you said, even though maybe he's come further than, than he ever dreamed, like, pff, you kind of discount him. Whereas Anderson Silva, win, win, lose, or draw, he's still going to be the greatest of all time. It, I mean, I think that I think the only real interesting storyline about Anderson Silva is how he's going to look in this fight. Like, is he going to be the Anderson Silva of old? Is he going to have come back from this supposed rib injury? Will he be able to stop the takedowns, et cetera, et cetera? Anyway, we've already we're already way over time God on this. Damn it! I felt, uh, I felt that. We'll be moving on to round two in just a minute, but first. The world's leading theatricus, theatricalist, according to him, according to self-proclaimed world's leading theatricalist, Nigel Longstock will be stopping by for everyone's favorite co-main event podcast segment, Master Tweet Theater, which starts right now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. Mm-hmm. 
And now we welcome back to the podcast everyone's favorite noted theatricalist and knight of dubious origin, what? Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I shall ignore your previous remarks as they are inconsequential. <laughs> well, I guess you just showed me. A, a gentleman always cuts a cad, as they say. Uh, those of you who don't know how this works, uh, first of all, the fuck is your problem? Second of all... Sir Nigel is going to read us out five tweets from people in the MMA community, not necessarily fighters, but, you know, often. Uh, we are going to try to guess who the tweeter in question was, and we're probably going to get it wrong. Uh, Sir Nigel, take it away. Give us uh, the first tweet. <clears throat> she sells seashells. Okay. <clears throat> you should no. really warm up before you come, just one of these times. Well, sir, I do not control the bus schedule. <laughs> <clears throat> Let us begin. Hmm. <clears throat> I shopping, but no money for pay, cause I forget my wallet in home, lol, lol, fanday. I'm sorry, were those stage directions? There? Oh yes, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I shopping, but no money for pay, cause I forget my wallet in home, <laughs> fanday. All right, well, Chad, you want to you wanna go first? Uh, not a native English speaker. <laughs> Good guess. I am going to go with former Pride champ Takanori Gomi. Oh, okay. You're thinking. You're thinking Asian. Uh, all right. I'm thinking. However, different continent. I'm gonna say, Vanderlei Silva. Both fun guesses, and both as usual incorrect. The tweeter is Diego Brandao. Oh well, okay, Brazilian. Although I think hasn't Diego Brandao been living and training at Greg Jackson's for like five years or something now? I don't know what you're trying to say, but. <laughs> I'm trying to say he should know enough by now to know that you got to bring your wallet when you go to the store. Are you trying to say, dude, you live in America, speak English? Because I feel like that's a little racist. Or... That is definitely racist, sir. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, either give us the king's Portuguese or uh, some a little better. Go on. Mm-hmm. What's the next tweet? Tweet number two. Let us hope it is perfect linguistically for Mr. Paul. Watching Universe. Literally one eye my fab shows on History Channel. Fascinating. Fascinating indeed. Wait, are we talking about... Somebody says that a TV show on the Discovery Channel... Or is it Discovery Channel? Uh, History. History, History Channel. Channel. That it is literally one of their favorite shows? <laughs> not, not figuratively literally one of their favorite shows? Literally one... I, my fab shows. Well, Literally one eye. That is vexing. Uh, I'm going to say that I hope the tweeter in question was drunk at the time. And I'm going to guess Mike Goldberg. Wow. Uh, I will go with, due to the typo and the misuse of the word literally, I'm going to go with recently exonerated Octagon Girl Ariane Celeste. Uh, a near guess, but one seat over Mr. Dundas. The tweeter is, in fact, Brittany Palmer. Oh, that's not bad, though. I was close. You were. I was close. And I don't know if that is a misuse of literally. I just don't know if... I think it's oh, a, yeah, you're right. you're an unnecessary right. use of literally. <laughs> we shall take it up with her next time. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll bring it up at the next pancake breakfast. <clears throat> the third tweet. Remember, the ass is just the breast of the back. Chad? I always guess this, and I'm always wrong. I don't know why I think this guy's so dirty, but I'm going to go with Matt Mitrione. <laughs> Man, you do love guessing Matt Mitrione. You know, I am tempted to go with the poet Philip Brony, but the last time when I tried to go all poet Philip Brony, 
Uh, Sir Nigel showed up here and made a fool of me by neglecting to include any of the poet's works. So now I don't know what to do. I'm going to go with my heart and say Josh Barnett. Fools are not made, sir. They are born. In fact, it is the poet Philip, excuse me, Philip Baroni. God damn you, Sir Nigel. Baroni. God, I hate you so much. His words resound, sir. Well, I can't argue with that. Tweet number four. My doctor told me not to lift anything heavy, so now I sit down to pee. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. An old joke, but a good one. Chad, do you want to go first? Uh, well, somebody with a sense of humor, a smartass. I am going to guess the oft-injured uh, Muhammad Lawal. <laughs> so you think it really is stemming from a medical issue there? Sure, yeah. The okay. best jokes are based in truth. That's, that, that's a good point. Uh, however, I'm going to say that whoever tweeted this is someone who thinks that, uh, you know, the kind of joke that your raunchy uncle tells uh, inappropriately over Thanksgiving is the height of humor. Therefore, I gotta say Bruce Buffer. <laughs> both fine guesses, both as often wrong. It is Miguel Angel Torres, oh, sir. Okay. Wow. Yes, he oh. wants us all to know he has a very heavy penis. <laughs> I've heard that about him, actually. And it's good to see that uh, Miguel Torres is not scared away from uh, getting raunchy on Twitter by his, his past experiences. He... He got right back on that horse, didn't he? Yes, he did. Like a balloon full of sand. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it comes down to this. All right. Our final tweet. Quote, I am certain Jesus Christ will return in my lifetime. End quote. Attribution, a billion dead people. <laughs> well, that's pretty awesome. Uh, whoever this is, I, I hope that I am following them on Twitter because that sounds like exactly the kind of Twitter account that I could get into. Um, somebody, I'm going to say not John Jones, no, n- not a super religious person, probably not Vitor Belfort. Uh, I'm going to guess this is a little crazy. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Former WEC and current kind of strike force matchmaker, Sean Shelby. Wow. I don't, I don't know where that came from. Uh, I, I think he's an atheist. Wow. Okay. And well. he's smart and funny. Okay. All right. Um, I don't have to justify myself to you. No, you do not, sir. I am going to go with a guy we, we often guess, a guy we've heard of before in Master Tweets Theater, uh, Dan Hardy. Both fine guesses, both wrong. It is, in fact, Eves Edward at oh, Love okay. Well, We both well, got skunked. We did. But, you know, I, it makes me feel good to know that uh, my favorite tweet of the bunch did come from Eve Edwards, who's one of my uh, favorite dudes in MMA. So, you know, at least there's still some order in the universe. Uh, all right. Well, in the instant instance of keeping this as brief as possible, well, let's just go ahead and move on. Thanks, Sir Nigel, for coming in. Thank you, sir. We'll go ahead and move on with round number two. Round two. After 15 years as a professional mixed martial arts fighter, almost all of it in the UFC, Tito Ortiz, a man with a 16-10-1 career record, now faces what he says will be the final fight of his career. Going into UFC 148 and his much-anticipated trilogy fight, sarcasm intended, with Forrest Griffin, uh, 
Tito Ortiz will be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame, which we've opined about in the past, about its legitimacy. Uh, however, Chad, I'm just going to put this one to you straight since we went long on the first round. Tito Ortiz, Hall of Fame career? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I think. Um, I think the only thing that could potentially could have kept him out was his sometimes acrimonious relationship with Dana White, and I think that that would have been a shame. I think that, you know, we forget about Tito just because uh, he's had such a kind of like long, slow grind to into the end of his career. We forget about the, the fact that he was a guy that, not to overstate the point, but I guess I'm about to, kind of essentially saved the UFC when when – it was in its in its darkest time when it had been dropped by a lot of uh, pay per view providers and 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 the you know John McCain was leading a, a coalition to try to ban the sport and it was it was definitely in the in the corner of of the niche sport market and and Tito Ortiz was a guy that that was the biggest star throughout that time and a guy that you could kind of set your watch by the fact that he would show up once every three or four months and beat the shit out of somebody um, and I think or that, not that, or lose. To the better fighters of his era, Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture. Well, yeah, that's, you know, toward the end of his, that Not ended his dominance. Uh, well, but... I mean, I, don't know. I think that was more the middle. But, okay, here's my, my point. And you got on it, and this is the first thing people go to when we talk about, is Tito Ortiz a Hall of Fame caliber? And again, UFC Hall of Fame, not the same thing as an MMA Hall of Fame. It's a company Hall of Fame. It's, you know, a, an aggrandized version of kind of employee of the month. That's fine. That's their right to do that. They, they can do that, whatever. But at the same time, you know, they can, they're going to put in whoever they want and keep, in, keep out whoever they want. So we should take that with a grain of salt. But the thing everybody always says when they talk about Tito Ortiz, whether or not as a Hall of Fame career, and I'm not sure if I disagree or agree, is what he did for the sport, for the UFC, in terms of attracting attention and, you know, marketability and self-promoting, that kind of stuff. They don't talk about his actual accomplishments as a fighter, which... I think when taken as a whole, tend toward mediocre. Your thoughts? Uh, wait, are you trying to, to to craft an opinion that Tito Ortiz should not be in the Hall of Fame? I don't just know. To be clear, I don't. I don't know if I'm saying that or not. Because, but it, it is weird to me. Like I don't think you would see that. Maybe you do see it with baseball. I don't know. Maybe it's just baseball so goddamn old that you don't hear about it anymore. But you don't hear anybody saying like, "Well, this guy was an okay player." But he's in there because, you know, he really did a lot for the sport of baseball. And he got people watching baseball again when they weren't watching it before. I mean, people tend to focus more on, like, was his career, the things he actually did on the... Even if he was a, a damn criminal, a literal criminal outside of the sport, was he a good enough athlete? Did he accomplish enough to justify a place in there? I think it's interesting that when we talk about uh, Tito Ortiz specifically, and when people you know make the case for Brock Lesnar being in, in the UFC Hall of Fame, which I think is really stupid, but that's what they, they talk about, what, what he, the attention that he brought, the, the fights he was able to sell rather than you know the fights he was able to win. Well, yeah, but Tito Ortiz, like, he, he was the dominant champion of the early part of, of the 2000s. I don't like, know if he was. He got his ass kicked by Frank Shamrock, who then left the company. Yeah, he got, his Shamrock, ass, he got his ass kicked by Frank Shamrock, and then Tito Ortiz won seven straight fights and defended the UFC light heavyweight title five times in a row. Yeah, but you look at who he, he defended it against then. Well, now you're just nit, nitpicking. Well, you can I do am. that with anybody. Yeah, okay. You, Chuck you, Liddell beat Vernon Tiger White and Jeremy Horn as the first two defenses right, of his light those, heavyweight title. Those are a couple mistaken. tough guys. Uh, but a couple you know, of tough middleweights there. We'll see. But uh, I mean, Tito, he 
he he had the the decision over you know Vitor. You could say, hey, Vitor is a middleweight, whatever. I mean, you can do that kind of stuff. But you can also say, fucking Yuki Kondo. You go out there and you get a neck crank submission on Yuki Kondo. How excited am I supposed to get about that? Yeah, but it was also 1999 or 2000 when that happened. I mean, when you look at the guys that he beat during that period, Vanderlei Silva, Yuki Kondo, Evan Tanner, Elvis Sinisek, Vladimir Matyushenko, and Ken Shamrock. I mean, granted, that's, don't t- don't come in here with that Ken Shamrock bullshit. That's not like don't a, do it. That's not an all star ballot for for certain. But like back in the in that era, that was also not indefensible. No, but see, that's the thing is we make this like. Well, I, I mean, I guess it depends on, it comes down to how selective would you want your mixed martial arts hall of fame to be? Yeah. Would Mark Coleman be in it? You know, I mean, that's a good if question. If Mark Coleman's in it, I think you put Tito Ortiz I, in I, No I, questions asked. Okay, fine. I, I, I get that. That That's a legitimate point. However, I do think, though, that when you look at the fight, who were the dominant, you know, light heavyweights of that era? Uh, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell both beat Tito Ortiz. Sure, you know? yeah. Those are the guys I think that those are the guys you look at and say Hall of Famer. You know, Tito Ortiz is a guy who, if he gets in, you know, the the equivalent would be not exactly a first ballot Hall of Famer. I would say. To my mind, though, Tito Ortiz almost predates those guys. Like his, like those guys rose to the height of their powers in like o two, o three, o four, o five. Was kind of like their, they were real big time then. To me, Ortiz was sort of like you know late nineties through. Like 1999 when he got beat up by Frank Shamrock? Like yeah, but before that, he had won three or four fights. I mean, at, in 2002... Yeah, really, really stuck to Jerry Bolander. In 2002, when he beat Ken Shamrock, Tito Ortiz was 10-2. and two. Yeah, I mean, how old was Ken Shamrock at the time? when? when well, I don't, I'm not going to figure that out right now. <laughs> you know, but see, that's the thing. is like uh, when You look at his, I think, on paper, not terribly impressive. 16-10-1 right now. Three of those wins over Ken Shamrock, who was already old when the rivalry started and just got older and sadder. Uh, <laughs> as that, you know, that those some that the last Ken Shamrock fight just shouldn't have even happened. Uh, he did, though. I mean, he when you look at what he did, especially I think for fighters to show them this is how you you sell a fight, this is how you self promote, this is how you make yourself into a brand, uh, and also this is how you stand up to the UFC even if it pisses them off, and get what you deserve. Maybe even more than you deserve. Think, look at how long he's stuck around now. How many other guys would have been cut by now? He's, nobody's allowed to lose as many straight fights as Tito Ortiz has and get paid as much as he has for doing it. That's kind of astounding. I mean, yeah, that's no, a, a blueprint for other fighters. You, you but that's a, a weird thing to talk about when you say, that's why he should be in the Hall of Fame. You made a great point the other night when we were off the clock and, and <laughs> at Al's and Vic's bar here in Missoula, Montana, and you said, I was blacked out. You, you know, sure. how shrewd is Tito Ortiz? You know, we knock Tito Ortiz for being stupid all the time, but like, essentially, how shrewd is he as a businessman to know that he gets a cut of these pay-per-views to make sure that he fights He's on always on a big pay-per-view. UFC 148, maybe the, maybe the biggest selling one ever. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I I think that sometimes we look at Tito Ortiz's legacy and we we feel like, you know, we all remember Tito from in, as one of those guys when there was only you know one or two guys who could really sell a pay per view, and he was the guy who kind of first showed the UFC this is what a this is what pay per view success could look like when he built up those fights with Ken Shamrock. Those are the ones that kind of first felt big. Um, so he does deserve a lot of kind of like pioneer recognition, uh, but. I don't know. It's also one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't want to fly on a Wright Brothers plane right now, you know? I mean, I feel like that that shit would be unsafe. 
So you're saying the Wright brothers, not in the aeronautics Hall of Fame. <laughs> God damn it. I, I walked right into that one. Well, what we've learned here today, I think Tito Ortiz is a shoe-in. Ben Folks is an asshole. He doesn't think Tito Ortiz belongs to the Hall of I Fame. I didn't say that. Again, though, ZOC Hall of Fame, they can do whatever the fuck they want. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, let's do a well-rounded fight fan and, and get out of Dodge. I have a... Uh, I have a pretty short one, and this one comes from friend of the podcast, Dan Brooks, who is, who's been on the show before. Uh, he recommended a, an op-ed from the New York Times this week by former Major League player Doug Glanville, which is actually pretty good, and, and it's, it's worth your time, uh, sort of about the trials and tribulations of being a top pick in Major League Baseball, being a first-round pick, and how that doesn't always equate to immediate success. Uh, I believe it's called Dream Dream to Nightmare, question mark, because the, the New York Times always does super short headlines on those things. But basically, if you go there and, and search for Doug Glanville op-ed, you'll find it. It was from the last week. If you can't find it, email us, and I'll send you the link. No, you won't. Uh, my suggestion uh, for anyone who is a fan of or has simply watched or heard of my MMA wrap-up video series uh, the the man behind the camera who films all those and lights them and edits them and, and is responsible for a lot of the stuff that keeps it from me just being an idiot with a, a flip cam uh, is a guy named uh, Nicholas Jenkins and he has uh, made a number of short films. He teaches in the film program at the University of Montana here in Missoula and he has a YouTube series called uh, The Lonely Director. Uh, if you go YouTube, uh, The Lonely Director, all one word, uh, you will find it. And he opines on a number of topics. Uh, he's basically a film nerd, and I mean that in the best possible way. If you like film nerd shit and you like you know, funny, well-put-together videos, uh, he's got a few of them on there. So I, I heartily re- recommend you checking that out. So there you have it. Uh, coming up next, we're going to close out the show with round number three. Round three. Well, I feel like we're we're becoming dangerously close to being Danny Downs Marks at this point, but uh, professional mixed martial arts fighter Danny Boy Downs did in fact email the podcast this week in response to, I believe, was it a mailbag uh, question that you did? No, it was in response to one of my falling action columns that I do oh, on okay. MMA fighting after an event. Uh, you got so many gimmicks over there. It's hard I do. To keep track. I, I got just nothing but gimmicks. But uh, a really thoughtful email by Danny Boy Downs, which we both agreed uh, brought up some interesting questions and deserved more than just a, a little a couple few minutes on the, the listener mail section. So we're going to devote a whole round to it. First, his email. Uh, and when you hear this email, I think you'll get a sense of why we have become huge Danny Boy Downs marks. Uh, the other day, as I was perusing the internet, I happened to come across an article written by Mr. Folks summarizing the events of UFC on FX4. Normally, these types of columns are filled with ex post facto justifications and repeatedly commit the common logical fallacy of patternicity, but this particular piece of prose struck me. When discussing the contest between Gray Maynard and Clay Guida, the author admonished those criticizing Mr. Guida's strategy and wrote, quote, Glorifying the going out on your shield mentality, or glorify the going out on your shield mentality all you want. At a certain point, it becomes indistinguishable from a pointless brand of self-destructive stupidity. Well, that's just smooth writing right there, isn't it, Dennis? <laughs> uh, Mr. Downs continues, As a fighter, I have often been guilty of glorifying this going out on your shield philosophy. In many ways, I embrace the worldview of Tony Montana. Here is attached a helpful YouTube video. Just with slightly less cocaine. Now, while I certainly commend any mention of Aristotelian moderation in the mixed martial arts community, I was hoping the gentleman from Montana could clarify this statement since MMA, by its very nature, is self-destructive. 
instead of criticizing those whom tap from strikes, should we laud their objectivity? By extension, would this not mean that Robert Sapp should be commended for his tactics of self-preservation? I am interested to hear if there are any objective measurements to discern this self-destructive stupidity, or does the author have the same criteria for proof as the late Supreme Court, Ju Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart had for pornography, which we, yeah, we talked about that earlier. earlier. Yeah. Many thanks for your time, and if perchance we had the opportunity to meet face-to-face, -face, I would gladly wish to continue this discussion over a pint of porter. Uh, first of all, Mr. Downs, thank you for your, your thoughtful email. Uh, if by chance you plan to be in Las Vegas for UFC 148, as I will, uh, I will buy you many pints of porter, uh, and I will charge my company for it. Uh, but on to his actual question. I think it's a really interesting distinction sure, that we're trying no to doubt. draw there, because here's the thing. Especially when, as it was used as a cudgel against Clay Guida, saying, and Dana White, I think, said it, you know, hey, usually Clay's a go-out-on-your-shield kind of guy. The implied, unstated part of that is, if you realize you're not going to win, go out there and at least get knocked out for our pleasure. Or, if you, you, know, if you think that it's going to be close, even, because that fight was close when it came to the decision, uh, do something crazy in pursuit of the win, thus making sure that, you know, we get somebody's pain, yours or the other guy's. I think that, that it, that's tough to, especially when the UFC is not so understanding of guys who rack up a couple of losses, you know, the way that affects your pay, the way you can get fired over that. It's then, I think, really difficult to tell those guys, get crazy out there. Go out there and, and put your, not only your health, but your career on the line uh, for the sake of one night's entertainment. I, I think that there's something to be said for fighting to end the fight, you know, fighting aggressively in an entertaining fashion, but at the same time, telling these guys that, you know, if you're not going to win, at least get knocked out, that's a weird thing, man. I don't, I don't, I don't yeah, know who can do that. Not only is it difficult for them to say that, I feel like it's really unseemly. I feel like there's something really kind of like dark and sinister about an MMA promoter being like, Hey, your job, you know, you should go out there and entertain the fans and by and extension, honest, I don't think make me said, a lot of money. Yeah, and I, I don't think he actually said that you, that you should do that. He said, usually, you know, Clay Guidas are going out sure, and, sure, and sure, seeming sure, to draw sure. the contrast that usually we like him. Not and, yeah. And I don't, I don't want to indict just Dana White and the UFC for that, but I feel like that overall in mixed martial arts, the industry has this, uh, ideal, like, that is what you're supposed to be as a fighter. Like, that's what you need to strive for is being super entertaining, even if it means taking a beating. Vanderlei Silva, for instance. Yeah, and as far as I'm concerned, if you're a fighter and you want to fight like Vanderlei Silva, more power to you. That's your choice. I feel like as a promoter or as a company that, that largely profits off the blood, sweat, and tears of others, it is somewhat, like, sinister and and... I guess I said before, unseemly to imply that that is the one way to do things. And that's, that's where I always have a problem with it. Here's the thing. I mean, bringing up uh, Robert Sapp, uh, I mean, that's one where I think it's pretty obvious what he's doing. He is really making no serious effort to win the fight. He, he has already collected his money just by showing up and he knows it. And so then he's just trying not to get hurt. I think a, a better question might be the infamous Caleb Starnes, Nate Corey fight. Uh, where not only did Caleb Starnes avoid engaging uh, with Nate Corey for most of the fight and was just mocked by not only Nate Corey in the cage, but by fans and by Dana White afterwards, um, and still held up as this kind of like Wally Pip-like cautionary <laughs> tale uh, for MMA fighters. Um, I mean, if you bring up Caleb Starnes now, it's the first thing everybody thinks about. And 
I think what was really interesting was I remember his justification for that performance afterwards, where he was saying, you know, he, he hurt his foot early in the fight or hurt something else too. It didn't feel like he was uh, capable of really going out there and ending the fight. And hey, the UFC was paying him some, you know, pretty piddling amount of money to go out there and make Corey's a guy who can hurt you. So what, he's supposed to take some brain damage when he already knows that he can't win the fight? And he said something along the lines of, you're not paying me enough to do that. That's an instance, though, where I think, okay, I mean, it's like that Winston Churchill joke where he sits down next to a lady at the dinner party and he says, would you sleep with me for a million pounds? And she says, yes. And he says, would you sleep with me for 10 pounds? And she says, what do you think I am? He says, well, that's already been decided. Now we're just bickering over price. I mean, I think if your argument is, well, I will take brain damage for a greater amount of money, but not the amount of money I agreed to on paper before this fight, then I don't think you have a position. I'm not saying your obligation is to go out there and get knocked out, but you can't then decide, well, I came here, I showed up, things didn't go my way, and I I did the math and decided it wasn't worth it, and so now I'm just going to try and get out of here in one piece. I think that is deserving of mockery. And I feel like a little hypocritical for saying that after we just made this right, but it's a point. fine line. It like is the, a fine. Uh, I mean, that's what he's saying. Is, this, is it a pornography thing? Do you know it when you see it? I guess it is. I mean, the Caleb Starnes thing was just kind of ugly, and and uh, he did sort of make a fool out of himself. Whereas I would never make that claim about Clay Guida because I thought that their fight was close. I thought he just had a, a good game plan that he failed to execute quite to perfection to the to the extent where of what it would have taken to win the fight. Um, and like I said, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I think it's. Totally Totally fine if if Vanderlei Silva wants to fight the way he fights and if Danny Downs wants to fight that way and go out on his shield, you know that's that's awesome. More power to him. But I don't want to get into a situation where we imply that that's what guys ought to do because we know that this stuff isn't good for you. We we know we we don't fully understand what the what the receipt is going to be fifteen to twenty years yeah. down the road. But guys are 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 making a. Uh, you know, they're making an exchange for doing apparently what they love to do and, and making some money and, and hopefully making enough to take care of their families in exchange for maybe quality of life later on down the road. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, it, it is destructive, but we do plenty of things that are destructive. Almost everything that we do that we like is destructive. Like we, we all well, drink. We like. Yeah. yeah. We all drink beer, but that doesn't mean you always have to drink 18 of them. Doesn't mean you have to drink 20 of them. You can switch to vodka sometimes. Yeah, saying. absolutely. Later on in the evening. Yeah. If, when you when you feel like it's vodka time, you just but I think gears. he does make a good point that it's uh, by its nature, it's not something that you get into. You know, you, you don't get into you don't become a professional MMA fighter if you're concerned about keeping your nose in its original position. Sure, you know you you know that there are certain risks there, and I could see why if you're an MMA fighter, you would just you would kind of glorify this mentality of like I'm going out in a blaze of glory. I mean, I would think though that like what's the difference between saying i'm going out in a blaze of glory and bob saps saying i'm going out you know either way if you approach it from this standpoint of fuck it you know i I don't know if that like shouldn't isn't what we want to see like i i feel like it becomes a gross thing for us to be watching if what we want to see is somebody hurt rather than what we want to see is a competition where both guys are trying really really hard to win I feel like that's where the distinction lies. That somebody saying like, "Well, screw it, I don't think I'm going to win." So like, uh, you know, I'll have him tell me what happened afterwards, and here I come. You know, or like, you know, Chris Lieben, as fun as he is to watch. Like when he, is, you watch it now, that pre-fight interview before he fights Van, or uh, Anderson Silva, and he's talking about how he's going to get in his face and and roughneck him. You know, <laughs> and it's like now you think about it, you're like, so you thought that was gonna beat Anderson Silva, huh? And then he goes out there and just gets destroyed. And it's like, well, did Chris Lieben do his job? Did he 
Did he deliver what people wanted to see there? I mean, I guess a lot of people would say yes. Uh, but I don't think that what we want to see is one guy just charging blindly into the cannons. I think we want to see both guys, you know, in a, in a competition using the best of their skills and strategy to try and win. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. It would be interesting uh, if you do see Danny Downs this week in Las Vegas to sit down with him and, and, and talk to him about it and, and more to the point, find out like what, what he's looking for from the sport because I think that it's probably a, a question that, that has its roots in that. I would be very interested in that. Open invitation to Mr. Downs. I know of some terrible strip clubs in Las Vegas where we could continue this discussion. Sounds like next week's show could be really interesting. Anyway, uh, w- before we wrap up, it's time for Just Saying Stuff, the part in the show where Ben and I each make a statement that we are then not asked to support or defend in any way. Don't even try and ask us. Uh, because we are, at the end of the day, just two guys saying stuff. Just saying. Uh, my saying stuff, I think, is uh, it's UFC 148 related. And, and it's, you know, part of me really wants to see Kung Lee, Tito Ortiz, and Chael Sonnen all get victories. Three in a row. Just saying. Well, that's a week just saying stuff. I'm going to say wow. this. Wow, okay. Yeah. Called out right yeah. here on the show. In an L.A. Times interview this week, Chael Sonnen claimed that he has to do synthetic testosterone and that if he does not do regular testosterone treatments, he will die. I'm just saying, Chael Sonnen, you must think we're fucking stupid. I mean, I like you, I think you're a fascinating guy and a good fighter, but you have to think we're all a bunch of fucking morons to believe that you are going to be the first person to die of testosterone deficiency. I'm just saying, man. Well, that was kind of like an "Are you fucking kidding it me?" Was and kind of just an, you, saying stuff combined. Well, they they bleed together. There's a lot of synergy on this show. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Tune in next week to find out about the co-main event, uh, the first annual co-main event po- uh, podcast listener contest. I it's really, going to be super exciting, even though Chad didn't really sell it there. It will be very exciting. Find I'll, out. Also, what, I'll be freshly returned from Las Vegas with tons of great fight week stories from Sin City. We got a big show cooking next week, but for now, that's it. We're out of here. We're done. That's the end of the show for this week. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. That guy, that guy is going to sleep a long time ago, and you know it. We missed an opportunity to talk a lot of shit about him. Well, uh, but it, I mean, if you're being serious, it's kind of like a, a sweet thing.